Hello, and welcome to the weekly podcast of C2 Church in Columbia, Missouri. That's messy, isn't it? That's the, that's the hard reality and the messiness of life is circumstances like that. As we continue our, our messy series, we're, we're talking about messy together over the next couple weeks. And here's the truth I want us to look at is that the hard, messy realities of life are softened by the gospel demonstrated through community. And that's what we see in this, in this video. I, I, they call them journey groups at, at their church. We call them life groups. They're just small groups of people living in community, doing life together. But it's the demonstration of the gospel through authentic community, caring community like this. That is essential. It's biblical. It's messy. And that's what we want to talk about this morning. You know, it was uh, this uh, is October nineteenth, two thousand seven, when Darcy and I lost our son at thirty nine weeks, and all, all the preparations being just days away from you know, the, the plans, delivery, all those things in that moment, life just sort of got really messy and the hard reality of life just hit us like a ton of bricks and it was hard and just a few days after um, Darcy got out of the hospital we had the funeral and we had over 300 people show up most of them weren't necessarily even our, our church people um local church, they were people from all over the United States that were close with us, and they were the body of Christ in that moment for us. They were our church. And this crowd of people packed into our, our, our church that uh, afternoon, and the funeral director later told me, he said, I, I've done a lot of uh, memorial services and, and funerals for stillbirths, but He's like, I've never seen anything quite like this. I said, what do you mean? He said, I've just never seen so many people who've shown up for, to care for a couple like this. It was that day that we experienced the overwhelming power of authentic biblical community as we were cared for, as our, as our local church cared for us and took care of our needs from mowing the grass to feeding our family and taking care of our, our kids and meeting some of the financial obligations of hospitals and funeral bills and all these things that were facing us at the time. It was meaningful for us. When the hard reality of life hit us, it was softened. The blow was softened by the reality of the gospel demonstrated through community. So we've been going through this messy series and you can find the podcasts for our previous messages online at c2church.com. But I think the reality is, I know the reality of life is this. Everyone's looking for community. Whether you know it or not, we desire it, we seek it out, consciously or unconsciously, we're drawn to community. That's how we're wired. In fact, 70,000 people yesterday demonstrated this. Show that picture. I was part of this community yesterday as we worshipped on our weekly 
Saturday worship service. We gathered together to sing songs. We lifted our hands. We coached from 10,000 feet up. We did all sorts of things. We gathered. I was sitting next to strangers, people I didn't know. But they welcomed me with open arms. You know why? Because when they said M-I-Z, I said... Exactly. That's the, that's, the, that's the passphrase. That's the code. I was wearing black and gold, and I was welcomed into the family. I sit down, and the guy in front of me turns around. And he says, Ed Yoder. <laughs> Hi, Ed. I'm Jeremy. He's my son, Robbie. He's his first Mizzou game. Oh, my goodness. His first game. All right. It's 1,000 degrees, right? <laughs> and this little crowd of people became my community for the next few hours as we cheered, as we, as we yelled things at the players for them to hear, knowing that if they just heard us, the game would go so much better, right, as, as we played uh, quarterback and coach all at the same time. It was an amazing feeling. But you know what? That's just a, a taste of community. It really, truly is part of community. That certainly is a community. But beyond that, I, I don't know these people. We won't get together. But there is a community that I saw yesterday that I thought, this is really intentional and intimate. Show the next picture. Tailgating. Come on. That is the next step in community. You don't just go to the game together. You get together before or after for hours. And you do, well, what Christians do. You eat food together. When you eat together, you are bonded. There's something about that, right? I, I love this kind of community. I, I love tailgating. There's something that draws me in. There's something about that community feeling. And my wife knows this. Every time there's a home Mizzou game, what do I ask? Can we drive down Providence and Stadium? And she says, no. <laughs> because I just want to see the tailgaters. I long to be part of that. And part of that is the feeling of community. The other part is the smell of barbecue. It's spiritual. There's something that just draws me to the tailgating. You don't even have to go to the game. You're welcomed into the tailgating. You shouldn't crash someone's tailgate party. Um, I don't know that from personal experience. I'm just saying I would never do that. So let me be perfectly clear over the next two weeks as we talk about being messy together. My goal is to move you from a weekend gathering like this where it's a bunch of people that you might high five and sit together and have some sort of camaraderie and recognition with. My goal is to move you to tailgating, what we would call life groups where you get together. Now, if, we, if you get together at like 6 a.m. before church on a Sunday morning with a barbecue and the tent out the back of your car, you want to do that? That would be awesome. How cool would that be if like our parking lot's packed at like 7 a.m. before church and people are barbecuing and, what are, why are you guys out here? Oh, church starts in two hours, man. Right? It's, I, I'm not, I don't joke about that kind of stuff. That's, that, we should do that. Let's do that. I see that hand. Let's do that. That's community. My goal is to move you toward authentic biblical community at C2. Beyond the weekend experience where you can get lost, you can be anonymous, and you can look nice, clean, and pretty. But in life group, you have people in your life that says, dude, you have barbecue sauce on your face. Wipe it off. 
they're real with you. You know what I'm talking about. Real people who tell you when a booger's hanging from your nose and your fly's down. Do you have those people in your life? You need people like that in your life. And in the Christian walk, you certainly need people who will not only challenge you in your walk, but speak life-giving words to you as we together discover what it means to be followers of Christ. That's my goal. I'm not being duplicitous in any way. You know from the outset that that's what I want you to do here at Christian Chapel. Now, community is not a gym membership or a, a membership at a country club where you pay the fee and you get something in return. There's some sort of service or something provided. It's not like that. In this community, we give and we're given to. It's not uniformity or unanimity, but unity. We don't all see everything the same exact way. We don't dress the same, think the same, walk the same. But we're united under one banner, the name of Jesus Christ. We sing songs to him. That's what we did at the beginning of our service, not because it's the segue into the best part where the pastor gets up and preaches. Thank you very much. It's not the warm-up act, right? It's not a chance for you to finish off your coffee and your donuts and wipe them off. It's the thing we gather to do is lift up the name of Jesus and identify with him. And we sing songs that reinforce to our heart and to our mind what it is we say we believe builds us in our faith because community is not passive. I don't come and sit in community. You come and sit in a pew and listen. That's passive. You come and participate and belong in community. The hard, messy realities of life are softened by the gospel demonstrated through community. Three things about community this morning that I want to share with you. Community is biblical. It's essential and it's messy. Community is biblical from the Trinity at the beginning of creation. Listen to the words of Genesis 1.26. Let us make man in our own image, our own likeness. Do you get the translation there? Let us. God, the three in one. We sang that this morning. I believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Our God is three in one. I don't quite comprehend exactly all that that means. I just know that the way God exists is beyond the dimension that I can understand. So certainly outside of the dimensions I know, he can exist in as many forms as he wants. But he's revealed himself to us in three ways. God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it's in this identity that God lives in perfect relationship with those realities. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One author writes it this way, throughout scripture the Trinity is seen as expressing a unique affirming kind of relationship toward one another. It's out of this that we were birthed, out of this relationship. And in the beginning, in Genesis, when God creates everything, including mankind, he declares everything good. In fact, after he declares the first, he, uh, creates the first human, Adam, he declares it very good. And just a few sentences later, the Lord says, it is not good that man should be alone. We go from being good and very good to not good, all in the span of about four sentences. 
what's going on. God knows the need that man has, having been created out of his likeness, the need that we would have for relationship, not just about marriage. This is the foundation of marriage between one man and one woman. But there, Adam was alone, not because God was not with him, but because he was without relationship with another person. I don't know too many people who live lives filled with joy or love that are fulfilling living in isolation. It is in our genetic makeup that we live in relationship. We were never created to live in a state of functional isolation. We were created as relational beings. John Ortberg in his book, Everybody's Normal Until You Get to Know Them. I love that title. He writes it this way. This is why we experience, this is why the experience of authentic community is so life-giving. We are taking our place in fellowship with life himself. When I am in isolation, I am lonely. When I am in community, I experience what might be called fullness of heart. The human heart is forever empty if it is closed in upon itself. In community, the divine community especially, a heart comes alive. And we see this not only at the beginning of creation, but we see it through time, through the Old Testament and Israel, through to the New Testament church. In fact, God thinks relationship is so important, community is so important, he gives us guidelines to live and function within community. First, with himself, as finite human beings who are imperfect, how do we relate to a holy, perfect, infinite God? He gives us the Ten Commandments. Now we can begin on some level to relate by behavior and by heart, relate to Him. But He gives those same Ten Commandments, not just community for community with Him, but for community with one another. For if we follow those Ten Guidelines, Rules, Laws, whatever you want to call them, we can function in community. Wouldn't you agree? It's really hard to get along in community when you're doing stuff like, I don't know, murdering people, stealing their stuff. (laughs) These were guidelines for community. Not rules that simply would please him, but rules that would allow us to live and function the way we were designed in community. This is why God gave us the church. It was for the purpose of living the gospel out in community. Neither we nor even this church, this thing we call church, and the church universal were designed to function otherwise. Even Christ himself, his example given to us, lives in relationship in community with the Father and with other people. He had crowds of people certainly that were his community, but he then had his disciples, 70, 120, uh, a pretty good size. Then he had the twelve that he spent a lot of time with. And he had three of those 12 that were more intimate with him. And then the Bible says that he had the one. Christ gave us this example. And even Christ in his perfection, if you read the Gospels, you see that he himself had a relational quotient. He needed people, not because he was imperfect, but because he was designed for relationship and community. And that's because, the second thing, community is essential. It's essential for us. Now, we're willing to accept substitutes as the real deal. I'm certainly willing to accept that my experience at the football game and tailgating 
it, it is the end all of it because it makes me feel good and, and, and all these things happen and I, I think, wow, this is wonderful. I want more of this. But I find that even those leave me wanting more. When we accept these substitutes and I'll, I'll admit that there are things in my life that provide some sense of community but not the depth at which causes my life to be transformed. I find myself on Facebook more than I'll admit to you today. But we accept that as a form of community. It's certainly a form of connection, but is it really authentic community? It it may provide that, but I wouldn't accept it at face value that simply because I have 7,000 friends I don't really have 7,000 friends. Um, but we sometimes accept that I have these friends on Facebook and this is my community. And what you guys revealed about yourselves on there is pretty amazing. I do feel like I know some of you more than I want to. That's funny right there. George, bon- George Barna, the famed researcher, writes this, that over the years, the years have shown that people who are disconnected from church, even those who self-identify as Christian, are less likely to engage in other faith activities, like Bible reading, prayer, volunteering, and charitable giving. And he says, while correlation never equals causation, he says these are important indicators to pay attention to, because as he concludes, whether we want to admit it or not, church attendance reads believers in regular faith rhythms and increases many other related faith practices. Practices. He's saying even this gathering on a weekend is instrumental in the growth in Christian dis- uh, disciplines and faith. So don't forsake the weekend gathering. But I'm saying what George Barna would also conclude is that simply sitting in a chair with a group of people on a Sunday morning is not the sum of community. That we should move beyond that. To God it was essential. So important that Jesus' last prayer is focused on community. If you read his last prayer, you understand that his concerns were primarily about the relationships and the depth of relationships that his disciples would have with one another. Do you comprehend this? As he's heading to the cross, as he's about to fulfill the purpose for which his life has thus led him, he's not praying for himself, he's praying first for the glory of the Father, and then he's praying for the believers that he would leave behind. His heart's desire, the dominant thought of his mind, even his last wish before his death, if you will. Written in John 17, verse 11, says this. These are Jesus' words. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. That they may be one as we are one. That's a throwback to the Trinity. The Son, the Father, the Holy Spirit in one. The community reflects the image of God. And this gift, this community we call the church, was not to establish organized religion. And I always joke that we're pretty unorganized around here anyway, so... It was not to establish an institution. It was to establish the life-giving measures for which the gospel would go forth. And community would be its primary way. 
It's for, for the fulfillment of the gospel. It's for the demonstration of the gospel. It's for the protection of those who identify as Christ followers. Listen to Jesus' words. When he says, Father, protect them. What's he providing for protection? Certainly the power of the Holy Spirit, but then provides community for which we can wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers of this dark world. He provides community for those very moments where you would face the harsh, hard realities, the messy realities of life, and in it see the demonstration of the gospel through community. Andy Stanley writes it this way, Sheep are never attacked in herds. They are attacked when isolated from the flocks. If you've ever read the writings of Dr. Henry Cloud, famed author and and leadership guru, writes in his book, Changes That Heal. He writes about the consequences of living in isolation, which I'll go through just briefly this morning. He talks about, first, the loss of perspective. That when our thoughts... Our perspective and perception of things are the only thoughts that we think and hear that we begin to lose the perspective that comes through interaction with other people, other perspectives, other perceptions. Leads us to a fear of intimacy and selfishness. Because when the sum total of your life revolves around what you think, your schedule, your needs, your desires, everything revolves around you, isn't that the definition of self-centeredness? It's hard to be self-centered in community. People will call you out in true community. I mean, the family is God's first original community, right? It's hard to live in isolation when you live in family, true family, true community. See, God created us with a hunger for relationship with him and with others. And at the core of who we are, we are relational beings. Dr. Henry Cloud concluded his findings by saying, the soul cannot prosper without being connected to others. The hard, messy realities of life are softened by the gospel demonstrated in community. And as a church, as C2 Church, as we grow larger in our capacity, as more and more people come to know Christ and they begin to call this place a home, a place that they call church, this becomes their community, we have to grow smaller in community. Does that make sense? As we grow in our capacity, as more and more chairs are filled, we have to grow smaller in community outside of the weekend services because that leads us to health, not just as a community, but on an individual basis. I love what the Apostle Paul writes. If you notice his writings throughout the gospel, the epistles throughout the New Testament, he writes oftentimes correcting the church. He's writing to these community, these communities of faith in uh, Galatia, Ephesus, uh, Philippi, Corinth, and he's oftentimes correcting them. He's rebuking them. He's telling them, this is not how you live in community. Here are, here's some advice to live together. And so he goes on in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Verses 9 through 11. He talks about the fact that community is messy. And just so you know, the church, this community right here, is messy. It's full of messy people. And guess what? You're part of it. Everybody say, I am part of the mess. Thank you for your confession. 
I had a friend one time who said, man, I just wish I could find the perfect church. Right? I mean, I, I have to admit, I probably had that same thought. But I once heard someone say this, and I, so I reacted with it. I said, dude, you cannot find a perfect church and then attend it. I said, if you find the perfect church, do not attend. He said, why? I said, because you'll mess it up. And that's the truth. Churches that are perfect or look perfect really are only because they're skin deep. Because life is messy. People are messy. Relationships are messy. And the reality of a church looks perfect is because they're hiding something and not acknowledging the truth. So Paul spends a great deal of time correcting the mess of community, of church. So here in 1 Corinthians 6, he says this. Do you not know that the wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, remember, who is he writing to? The church, believers, followers of Christ. This is the community he's directly directing his comments to. He says, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, thieves, nor the greedy, the drunkards, the slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's quite the list. And you know what? All of you are in there. And I'm in there. He calls us all out. But here's the hope of the gospel in verse 11. And that's what some of you were. Past tense. That's what some of you were. He doesn't gloss over the mess of who we were, but he stands upon the hope and the anchor of the gospel that has transformed our lives beyond what we used to identify as to who we now identify with. We are now followers of Christ. And all that was is no more. We are new creations, as he would later write. And he says, that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's what some of you were. This is the hope of the gospel that only happens in authentic biblical community, life transformation. Second Corinthians, where Paul writes in verse 4 and 7, he writes this, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. What, what's he saying there? He's saying the power to transform lives isn't me. It's not anything else. But that power that resides in the believers, these feeble and breakable jars of clay, these vessels that seemingly are worth very little, are filled with the treasure of the kingdom of heaven, the very power of God. As Caleb said this morning, the very power that raised Christ from the dead lives in the lives of believers. This all-surpassing power from God, not from us, now resides in the hearts of believers. Treasures in jars of clay. In you and I. In collective, we are the community living the gospel. Recently, a, a well-known pastor and speaker, at least in the, the church world, church pastor world, confessed his adulterous affair. Tulian Chavijan confessed it to his church and resigned his position. And in a, a recent interview, this is now months, months later, He's interviewed and talking about his mess. And he says a few things I think are powerful for us. And he said this, if I disappear and hid completely after my confession, 
so that I only let people see me when I'm strong and shiny, then I'm undermining the very message that I spent years preaching. And he went on to close his comments by saying, the gospel sets me free to let you see me at my worst. The gospel sets me free to let you see me at my worst. Because we all have a mess. And the only way those messes get cleaned up is through the power of Jesus Christ. And then we live in community, not patting each other on the back going, oh, it's okay. No, we live in the reality that the power of Christ compels us to overcome. The power of Christ compels us to not stay any longer in the sin of who we were, but to press on forward to what we've been called to be in Christ Jesus. That's the value of community. And without community, there is no extended life change or life transformation. The only way to live as a Christian, you make the decision to follow Christ on your own, but it's impossible to live the Christian life without community. In just a moment, our ushers are going to come forward and serve us communion, the Eucharist. And Caleb will lead us in a song of reflection. We serve an open communion, meaning you don't have to be a member of our church, but you certainly need to be a member of the church, universal. You've declared followership of Jesus Christ. When the early church gathered, they did two unique things that carry on to this day. They baptized people in water, which we will be doing in just a month. If you want to participate in our class, you can sign up for that. But they baptized people in water because it was identification with that community. It was identification with Christ's death and resurrection coming to new life. And the second thing they did was they went to the Lord's table, what we call communion, or some call it the Eucharist. We call it communion, and you see in the words, in it, the words community and union. It's about the unity of believers coming together for the one thing that we all identify with death and the resurrection and life of Jesus Christ and now living through believers. They identified and they celebrated his brutal death. You know how unique that is in the religious world that we celebrate the death of our leader? Think about that for a second. We celebrate his tortured body and his shed blood not because we're morbid, but because we know that in that, the debt of death that was upon us all was lifted because Jesus paid that sin debt that we could never pay. And so we celebrate the reality of that. That's why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11. Again, he's, he's dealing with correction in this new community that is celebrating the power over life and death by the resurrection of their leader, Jesus. And they are to live in love and grace provided by the power of the Holy Spirit and forgiveness of sins by that same measure. Paul's upset at some point because he knows they're not living in true community. So he writes them in 1 Corinthians 11 that their gatherings weren't pleasing 
They weren't living in true community. And so he corrects them and says, listen, those of you who have wealth and means, you, you, if you don't work, you gather together and you, and you come together for a feast. That's what the Lord's Supper was in that day. They actually came together for meals. So those of you who think Christians getting together over food is not biblical, totally biblical. It's right here. They come together for a feast. They get together and celebrate by breaking bread, literally eating a meal together. But he's saying, those of you with wealth are coming together. You're sharing the bounty of what you've provided. You eat it. And those who are of the working class of that day would show up later because they've had to work all day into the evening. They show up and there's neither food for community or relational connection. You've now become divided. That grieves God. That's not what community was designed for. So in correcting them, he writes these words. He says, for I receive from the Lord what I also pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, the cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until I come. And Paul goes on to write, so then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink Without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. He straight up says, this is what is killing you. I don't even know that he's talking in hyperbole here. He's literally saying, you are weak and sick in your physical and your spiritual bodies, and you're dying because you have failed to honor God in two ways in community. First, the connection of remembering that this feast, this meal, communion was meant to honor the Lord Jesus and his sacrifice. It's not simply symbols that we take in a religious ceremony, but the depth of the meaning of this ceremony, if you will, was accepting that Christ's broken body was so that our brokenness would be healed and his shed blood the very blood transfusion that would take our sin sick blood and give us life giving blood amen and so it's in this moment that we remember we recognize when he said you fail to recognize the body of Christ he's not just saying the symbolism in this moment. He's saying you're failing to recognize the community. That those sitting to your right and to your left of different socioeconomic status, even in that day, and and certainly today, those of a different ethnicity, you're all one and you're failing to recognize it. And you're dishonoring the Lord. And he said, you need to repent. Not only do you need to remember and recognize, but you need to repent. You need to say to the Lord, I can't do this on my own. That all the work that has been done 
was done by Jesus. He's not just calling them out on sin issues, behavior issues on their life. He's saying, you failed to recognize that life and forgiveness, it all comes because of what Jesus did. That's why we take communion. Because everything that ever would need to be done was done in that moment. And the only thing I can do, the only thing I desire to do then, is to offer my life, everything that I am, that's the only thing I can do at this point. I can't work for my salvation because all the work's been done. And the last thing he says is receive. Receive it. Receive the community you've been given. Receive the forgiveness that you've been given, the life, the new life. Receive it and walk in it. I invite those of you who've never taken a step of faith to believe by faith in the person of Jesus Christ and the reality of life transformation that's only found in Him. It's in the moment we repent and recognize what Jesus did, that we step into the reality of forgiveness and grace. Many of you prayed that prayer at one time. Jesus, come into my life. I accept the work that you did on the cross, your death, your resurrection. Pay for my sin and give me new life. Lead my life. Whether you've never prayed that a prayer like that, or maybe you need to just do it again. Not because your salvation's been lost somehow. As I find when I confess that, when I speak that, when I pray that, it inspires my heart again to the reality of the work that Christ has done and is doing in my life. Has everyone been served? That's what you do in community. Has everyone been served? partake together. Jesus on that night, he took the bread and he broke it so that we could find wholeness again and relationship with the Father. Jesus, thank you for your broken body. We remember. We repent. We receive it to live that new life. Let's eat of the bread together. eternal life that happens sometime down the road when I die and I get to go to this place called heaven that's unicorns and rainbows. Now the reality of new life and eternity starts now. And when we get to heaven, it'll be a place we've all always known because Jesus is there and we'll recognize him and know that's where we are always meant to be. 
Jesus, thank you for your shed blood that washes my mess away. That who I was, I no longer am. Because I've recognized that I'm yours. I'm no longer bound to the things that I used to be identified by. And I identify only in one thing and one thing alone now. I'm yours. I'm your child. I'm set free. And it's by your blood. Thank you. Let's drink of the cup together. Father, bless your people today, your children. We go from this community gathering. May we be challenged and take steps to live in authentic community with other believers. That we might become more and more like your son Jesus. And that this community, living in that authentic way, is the hope of the world. It's what every person on this planet is longing for. Relationship with you and relationship in people, with people. May we be that light and salt in this world. Bless your people today. Amen. Hey, we're so glad you listened in. If you made a decision to follow Christ today or would like more information, please email us at nextsteps at c2church.com or visit us at c2church.com.